I want you to imagine with me the journey of the Magi, the wise men, as we often refer to them, to Bethlehem. Uh, they're from what we would call Babylon uh, today, and even as it was known then. That journey, the distance and the duration, what that took. Some 800 miles by the travel routes, the trade routes of, of the time. Some 800 miles, they're in probably roughly some 40 days, duration and distance. Think with me also uh, of difficulty and, and danger that these men would have faced. Uh, clearly it was more than three. It had to have been. They had to have traveled with a caravan, with many guards, with many centuries, with many in the party in order to make their way along those many miles, delivering the treasures, of course, that we read of there in Matthew chapter 2. So, you know, the distance, the difficulty, the danger... And I think we could understand maybe even some doubts that might have cropped up in their minds along the way as well. You know, maybe something along these, these lines. What are we going to find when we get there? And did we read the signs right? And is this in the end really going to be worth it? Now, please understand, these men... And everyone, and the, and the events that we read of in Matthew 2, these are all historical figures. This all happened. At the same time, their journey and the struggle therein is in many ways symbolic of the walk of faith. And the hesitations and the struggles and the questions and the temptation to turn back and to give up. What will sustain us? What will sustain us, keeping us from turning back and giving up? If you have your Bible with you, I ask you to turn with me now to the book of Revelation. And this is a pretty much the easiest one I could tell you in terms of how to find. Uh, or tied at least with the, the other one, that was Genesis. So Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Uh, this is the last in our four-part series. First things first, looking at John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and Revelation 1 as to how Jesus reveals himself to us as the exalted one. Who is this one that comes wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger? Well, he didn't stay there. Uh, he is the exalted one indeed. We're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Hear now the word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice 
was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is astonishing, just the, the opening salvo here of the book of Revelation. And we know that later you promise great blessing for those who read it, for those who take it in and take it to heart. We ask that you, you indeed would help us to do that, that very thing here. We need this. Every one of us in this room needs to hear what John saw and heard there that day so many years ago on that island there in the Aegean Sea, uh, there as he was in exile uh, for his faithfulness to you. And as he was writing to those seven churches in very historical places, we in our own historical setting here today need to hear what he heard. And we ask that you would give us ears, dig ears, such that we would hear and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned uh, a moment ago the uh, trip that the Magi, the wise men, took to Bethlehem so many years ago. Let me tell you a little bit about mine. Uh, just earlier this past year in January. It's roughly about a 30-minute bus ride from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. Now, you need to understand that today Bethlehem is in what is known as the West Bank, which means that it is under the control of the Palestinian Authority. So, when you are entering into Bethlehem, you have to go through an Israeli checkpoint. That's quite an experience the first time you go through one of those. Let me read you the words, the English portion of the words of the big sign that I saw on the side of the road. The sign said, again, in the English portion, This road leads to Area A, under the Palestinian Authority. The entrance for Israeli citizens is forbidden dangerous to your lives, and is against the Israeli law. Well, that gets your attention. Never seen one quite like that, as does the eight-foot-high concrete wall and the watchtowers there upon that wall and the barbed wire and the cameras. Now, everyone assures you, and it's actually true, that as a tourist, a Western tourist, you're actually safe. But you really get the feeling there's a lot of tension here. There's a high, high-level degree of animosity between parties. Now, I bring that up simply as a segue into the context of what we are reading here in Revelation chapter 1. Setting, John, the Apostle John, is writing in the late, late first century. The man is in his 90s now. He has been exiled to the island of Patmos. It's a little island, not really all that big. He's there 
put away by the Roman authorities. He, for his faithfulness to the gospel and his preaching of Jesus through the years so faithfully, uh, he is writing to these churches, these seven churches in Asia Minor, an area of the world we would know now today as Turkey. And he's writing to these churches because they are in the midst of a profound struggle. A struggle. They are being pulled and the, the great danger that they are facing has to do with false heretical teaching. It has to do with the, the pull and the temptation towards um, wealth and power. And also, violent, horrendous persecution. Put it another way, the dangers that these churches face, these historical places that you can go and visit today, the dangers that these churches faced there in the late first century were uh, uh, intellectual dangers, moral dangers, and physical dangers. And John is writing to these people. And by the way, in terms of the persecution, you need to understand something of the context, something of... What, where things are in the flow of history now. This is not the, the period of the erratic, sporadic persecution as was in Rome with Nero some 25 years before. No. No. At this point, it's now the, not the sporadic persecution of the Christians. It is a systematic persecution of the Christians. Domitian, who is in, in, fully intending to squash this cult out. So, we read in the historical documents of Christians being crucified. We read of many others who were impaled on stakes and covered in pitch and lit a flame for their faith. We read of others. You know where the expression drawn and quartered comes from? We read of others who are tied to horses, their limbs, and the horses sent in other directions. We read of others who are fed to the wild beasts we read of some whose skulls had holes drilled in them and molten lead poured in. And if you, were, if you saw mercy, you were beheaded. See, that's the historical record. History is a stubborn little thing. What these early believers faced. How did they respond? This too is a stubborn historical thing. How did this... The, early church respond? Forgiveness? Joy? And they stood their ground. And stunned the Roman world. History is a stubborn thing. How do you explain that? Not just the animosity, but the response. What was it? Well, how were they enabled to respond this way? What was given to them such that they could respond that way? What was it that they needed in order to respond that way to such horrific trials? And by the way, what might we need to respond to the trials that we face in our own day? My friends, in order to remain faithful to Jesus, in order to really follow Him through the valley and in the darkness and all of it, in order to remain faithful to our Lord, we need a revelation. A revelation of and from Him. And that's what we have, you see. 
That's what the Lord in His mercy to His people there in the late first century gave to them that they would be faithful to Him. You see, in order to be faithful to the Lord, we need a revelation of and from the Lord. And that's what He provides. That's what we have. If we will but have eyes to see and ears to hear. And how, what do we see? What is it that's revealed? What is it? And literally, it's unveiled is, is the word, actually. Another way you could translate that. What is it that's unveiled before us here in this text? Two things. That we would remain faithful. Christ's glorious person and his great promises. That we would remain faithful. Let's look at this together. First, his glorious person. You see this in particular in verses 12 through 18. Now understand in terms of how, how do we read this? How do we understand this? How do we take this in? You've you got to understand that John is attempting to describe the undescribable. John is attempting to describe what no artist on a canvas could possibly capture, what no photograph, no film could possibly in, in, encapsulate. The indescribable. The, the exalted Jesus. He speaks of one who is like a son of man, clearly hearkening back, tagging into that prophecy, that, that vision that Daniel had centuries before, referring to this exalted one who would receive dominion, eternal and everlasting dominion from the ancient of days. And by the way, this was Jesus' favorite self-designation. The Son of Man, as you read through the Gospels. His clothing. We read that he is wearing robes of a priest and the sash of a king. His appearance. Oh my goodness. Hair. Brilliant white. Implying, symbolizing cosmic divine wisdom. Eyes. Eyes aflame able to see, to pierce, to look right through all of our facades. Feet of burnished bronze, symbolizing power and strength and might that will overcome any foe. A voice, a voice that thunders like waterfalls, and probably also like, by the way, the crashing of the breakers that you could never get away from on the island of Patmos. Not just that, a, a mouth that, that spoke with a sword. Again, of course, it's imagery here. But meaning he, his words speak, there, there's justice there, a cuttingness to it, going right to the, the bone, to the heart. And beyond that, a face. A face blazing like the sun. Unimaginable, unendurable majesty and glory. This is the exalted cosmic Jesus. John is seeing Him as He really is and trying to describe what He saw. What did He hear? What did Jesus say? What words did He speak to John? Well, we see this in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Jesus clearly here is speaking of himself as the first and the last. That's, that's, he's speaking, I, I, am, I am God. I am 
the beginning point. You need to understand, I am the start of everything. You would need to understand your life is to be lived in the context of me. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am where everything is going. I am what everything is about. I am the goal. I am to be your goal. I am to be your chief end. And by the way, not some end, not some means towards your ends. I am the end. I am the first and the last. He goes on from there to push it even further. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I am the living one. Jesus is saying, I died to redeem my people, to, to set them free. I died and I now live and I live forever. And death has no power, no hold on me, nor them, nor my people. Death has no power, no hold on me or them. You see, that, to, that we would be faithful. Jesus is giving us a revelation of his glorious person. You see, there's so much more going on than we know or can see. There's so much more going on than we know or see. And indeed, He is so much more than we know or see. And that's why we need this vision. It's something like a child, boy or girl, doesn't matter. Uh, maybe they found the spot, the hiding spot in the home. They found the Christmas presents wrapped. And they've picked up one, it's got their name on it, and they, they want to know, of course, you know, what's in there. And so they pick it up. And they're feeling it. They're shaking it. They're listening, trying to figure out. And then their heart sinks because they're, really, they're just convinced it's socks or underwear. And not, not that treasured toy, not the object of their heart's affection that they've got their, their everything set on. But here's the thing, what they don't know, what they don't realize is that underneath the wrapping, underneath the packaging, underneath all the padding, it is the toy. Their senses have fooled them. And they walk away from it, sad and disappointed. That's us. All the time. There is, there is so much more going on than we can know or see, and He is so much more than we can know or see. And that's again why we need this vision. Now, it may not be what we want, but I tell you it is what we need. It's what we need when your marriage is crumbling. It's what you need when your career is stalling. It's what you need when your health is failing. It's what you need when your plans are coming apart. You need this vision of the glorious Jesus. Why? Because it forces you to see things and to deal with things as they are, as, as they really are, and not as you are seeing them. I'll put it another way. I heard it said uh, just here recently. You know, there, there's, and I know there's all these lists of, you know, there's two ways of living. Okay, here, here's a really good one, though. There's two ways 
of living. One is to live with God as your beginning and your end, as Jesus describes himself here. There's one way, that would be to live with him as your beginning and your end. Or another way is to live with him as your means, the means to your ends. And I think it's pretty clear from the text, you know, Jesus makes it very clear which way we are to live. So how then, what might be the diagnosis that we might want to go through, some heart's diagnosis, some questions that we might want to ask of ourselves, that we would come to grips with whether or not we are, in fact, treating him as a means towards our end? Let me ask you this. Are you mad at him this morning? Are you disappointed and disillusioned with God? Let me tell you what's going on in your heart with that. You have set your heart's desire on something other than Him. You have made the chief object of your affection something other than Him. Maybe it's that marriage and what you had in mind of how it's supposed to go. Or your career. Or your health. Or your plans. And you've elevated all that over Him. You're not getting what you want. You're not getting what you think you deserve, you see. And now from within, things are flying apart. And you're mad. You realize you've been treating him as a means towards your end. That will not work. That will not work. That we would be faithful Jesus, in his mercy and love to us, gives us this revelation of himself. His glorious person. And as though that wasn't enough, he also follows that with these great promises that, of course, only his glorious, such a glorious person could give. These promises... You see this especially in verses 17 through 20. Really, you see it throughout, but especially verses 17 through 20. And it begins with his, the promise of his presence with us. That's where you see with the lampstands. For, for instance, verses 12 and 13, we read, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, lampstands, their function is not to create light, but to hold forth light in a dark place. That's what a lampstand does. We read here that the churches, these seven churches that are being written to, you'll see that as you keep reading in chapters 2 and 3, these churches are the lampstands. And we read that Jesus is in their midst. He is standing in their midst. He is walking in their midst. Therefore, he is present with his people present with the churches, no matter how may it seem, no matter how it feels, no matter what it looks like, Jesus says, I am present. You are not alone. I am with you. I know. I see. I see more clearly. I see more deeply. I see further, wider, higher than you ever will. I am with you. I am with you. I am present in the midst of the lampstands. That's the first thing, the promise of his presence with us. The second thing is the promise of his protection of us. And we see that with the stars. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. 
And you keep reading down to verse 20, lest there be many, any misunderstanding as to what he means by that. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now this word that's translated in the English as angels, is also, angelos, is actually the very same word that we can be translated as messenger. So really commentators are not quite sure what's being referred to here. Are these Earthly messengers or heavenly messengers? It can go either way. I will tell you there's not un unanimity of opinion among commentators as to what exactly is being referred to there. In fact, it really could actually refer to the churches, the individual churches themselves. But here's the point. Whichever way you want to go with that, here, here's, here's the point. Jesus is saying, I hold them in my right hand, which implies his protection over them. So not just his presence, but his protection. His, his presence with us, his protection over us to preserve us and to never let us go, despite, again, how things feel. Remember, first century, these are the churches, Domitian persecution. How does it feel? How does it look? Not so good. Jesus says, I'm with you. I have you. I'm holding you. You're mine. You're mine. You see, that, that we would be faithful that we would remain faithful to the Lord, he gives us this revelation of himself and his great promises. That can have a profound effect upon you through the degree that you take it to, into your heart. Some of you may know that this is the last year of the sesquicentennial, uh, the, the great celebration, 150th year celebration of the American Civil War. And... Uh, Certainly one of the more notable figures, remarkable figures of that period was the Confederate General Thomas Stonewall Jackson of Virginia. So of course he was notable. But um, beyond that, Jackson was a devout Presbyterian. He was also a deacon in his church. He was also the teacher of a Sunday school class to African slaves. Jackson, of course, had that nickname, Stonewall. He got it after the Battle of First Manassas in July of 1861. And he was asked by one of his subordinates, General, what? how? How are you able to stand, literally, stand in the midst of, this, of a battle like that with bullets flying and shells exploding and all of that, and the chaos and the carnage? How? And this is what Jackson said. Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death, I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. Captain, that is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. You see, if you take this seriously, if you take this into your heart, your heart, it'll make you dangerous. Now, please don't misunderstand me when I use that word. I don't mean by that violent and destructive. That's not my point. I mean dangerous in the sense of radical and transformative. Dangerous to the status quo in, in, in that sense. Why? How? Because you're free. You're free from all the shackles, everything that ever bound you up before. You are free. How? I'll give you some examples. You're shameless now. Without shame. When you hear the accusations that are coming you know, from within your own head 
or from the lips of other people. You know what you can say to that in all honesty? Yeah, I know. You know, actually, I'm a whole lot worse than you think, than you could possibly know. But you know what else? Jesus loves me a whole lot more than you could possibly know or think. You're shameless and, and, and fearless, able to be transparent before people, you know, because you're set free, able, to, you know, really to be honest, honest with other people, to confess your sin, and able to confront other people in theirs. Yeah. Why? Because you're not living for anyone's approval. Except Jesus is, oh, and by the way, that's locked down. You're free. You're free. Transparent. Oh, free to be bold. Free to take risks. No longer frozen in indecision and fear as to what might happen and how you might screw up and what might go wrong. Why? Who holds you? Who's with you? Who guarantees that everything will turn out right? Trust me. Who says that? He does. This one that John is seeing, hearing from, here in this unveiling. You see, that, that we would be faithful. Jesus is giving us this revelation of Himself and His promises. Oh, that we would hear them. Oh, that we would hear them. See, he is, he's these, these two things. I hesitate to say this, but I'll just put it this way, that we have to hold in tension. He, he is our, our friend, absolutely. But he is also at the same time Lord, the King. The friend is our King. The King is our friend. He is the exalted, cosmic, eternally, everlasting, pure, mighty, majestic one, and our friend at the same time. I really don't know of another way to illustrate this for you except a fantastic scene from C.S. Lewis's, uh, Lewis's first book that he wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's roughly towards the beginning, first third or, or so. Uh, the four children from England, the Pevensey children, have basically, I'll just say, basically just entered into Narnia, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver have taken them in, and a conversation is, is flowing there uh, between them as to Narnia and, and why it's always winter and never Christmas and how it's come under the spell of this terrible white witch. And then the conversation shifts to this topic of Aslan. Let me read you these words. Oh yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. Well, once again, that strange feeling like the first signs of spring, like good news had come over them. Who, who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white witch all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Thomas. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord, love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone if she can stand on her two feet 
and look him in the face. It'll be more than she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, no. She'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him, asked Susan? My daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man, asked Lucy. As not a man, asked Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. <laughs> that you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Revelation 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. You see, John's response is absolutely appropriate, absolutely understandable. The voice that he has heard is deafening. The sights that he has taken in are dazzling. So of course he's undone. But notice also Christ's response, putting his hand upon him, saying, don't fear, and, and in essence he's saying this, whatever else may happen, know this, I am. Whatever else happens, I am. I have the victory. It is mine. And you are mine. Whatever else happens, know this. Friends, the history, again, that stubborn little history thing, is that this sustained John. That's not a point that can be argued. And the impact that this letter had upon those seven churches in Asia Minor was that it sustained them as well. Through the storm of everything that they faced, it sustained them. It was the counterweight to all, all the pressure, all the terrors, all the everything. It was the counterweight to, to it all. Now, here's what we have to consider this morning as we close. If that was enough for them, surely it can be enough for us. Now please don't hear me belittling what you're going through right now. That's not my point. I'm just asking you to think. I'm just asking you to, 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 to reflect. I'm just asking you to take this in. I'm asking you to hear. I'm asking you to see. And think it through. Wrestle it to the ground. If this was enough for them then, 
can it not be enough for us now? Yes. Yes. Jesus in his love for you, in his love for us, has given us this revelation, this unveiling of his glorious person and his grand promises. Oh, that we would see. Oh, that we would hear. Let's pray. Lord, here at the outset, we have to acknowledge that our duress and our struggle is not like the original readers of this book. Though for many today, for many of our brothers and sisters around this world, this morning, this moment, it is. It is. And we ask that you would cause that to sober us and to be thankful for this moment that we live in. So, the duress and the struggle may not be like theirs, John's readers, but it is still just as real. And that we would not give up, that we would not turn back. We ask that you would help us to see what he did and to hear as he did, that we would then be able to respond as he did and as they did in a whole different way, which could only possibly be possible because of the reality of Christmas. Not some wishful hope, but a fact. The reality of Christmas and the hope of your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I may ask our ushers if